It is six hours later. You're all standing outside of a precinct house here in the Cape Largo. Felon and Hawkins have been taken to hospital. Charges have been laid and then dismissed. Charges on whom? You. All of you, in fact. Criminal trespass, assault, unlicensed attempt to alter the thomic properties of the area. The stack went on. Felon was fucking furious. Like he was, a, he, he majored in divination, but his minor was in law. That little bastard. And so, six we, six hours later, you're all standing out in front of the precinct house. Twelve hours later, none of you have a place at the university or anywhere to live. Fifteen hours later, by some concatenation of circumstance, you all go to part ways at Finn's boat. How am... If Vesper no longer has ties to the university, what's happening to her? This isn't right. None of this is right, Vesper. We fucked up. No, that's not what I mean. I was told that I was tied to the university. I am no longer tied to the university. I no longer have a place there. So why am I still here? Because you're tied to me. No, you're also I tied to this plane. There isn't gonna. What? You were summoned to this plane. The fact that you're not tied to the university doesn't mean you're automatically going to go back home. It's going to be more complicated than that. How so? Like, being tied to Juro shouldn't matter because that was only because of the university. And the university... Well, I have no idea why you're not stuck on the university. I'm guessing it's because you're still linked to Juro in some way, shape, or form as that was associated with the university. What I'm saying is it's not a rubber band. It's not going to let go and send you back. What was done is a little bit more permanent. We're going to have to find some other way around that to get you back home. Well, if you want the actual answer says a voice from over by some crates here in the rain as uh, you're all standing around on the quay next to Finn's boat discussing. They all turn around. There's a about six foot tall humanoid figure in a long coat with an umbrella that shades his face. Mr. Castle? Miss Vesper. She bows her head slightly. We weren't expecting to encounter you here. No, I, I should assume not. It took you forever to get here. Vesper just looks at Finn and then looks back at him. What can we do for you, neighbor? What do you mean, get here? Were you waiting for us? For quite some time now. Yeah, look. Uh, I, I am sorry about the, the skulk on your property. I 
I promise you, we, it was not our intention to bring any danger to your home. Professor, please, uh, Mr. Adler, can we borrow your, the privacy of your boat to discuss some business, or would you prefer to do it out here in public where everybody can hear? Well, there's not much room, but you should all be able to fit. We'll adjust that. Welcome to Runelanders. I'm Matt Adam, your host and friendly neighborhood dungeon master, and so it's my job to let you know that Runelanders contains mature themes, adult content, coarse language, and things that might offend sensitive listeners, and so listener discretion is strongly advised. Now, if that sort of thing is your sort of thing, then thrill to these tales of terror in a town called Tallwater, far away in the west. It's the sort of place that has a space for the good and the bad and the worst and the best, and the sane and the mad and the cursed and the blessed. If not at its university, at least in its menagerie. What weirdness will these academic adventurers uncover in this Eldritch episode? Well, I could tell you, but we'd rather show you we're the Runelanders. This is Tallwater Tales. So get ready, Runatics, and let's roll. I'm going to pay you the compliment of being brief, Joe. The university had become a crutch for you. You mean my entire life's work? I'm saying that you're wasting your potential staying there and teaching people how to banish moths out of their closets. I remember how you used to be. I thought I'd offer you a tryout for a job you didn't know you wanted. A job. Yes, sir. You see, I am part of a society of like-minded individuals, arcanists, mechanics, engineers of all kinds, from celestial to the very mundane. And we have spent a lot of our time watching the way that the universe has moved. And we believe that something terrible is about to happen, and we need the best and brightest minds to stop it. However, you can't tell this to the anointed heads of the world because they won't believe you. If they do believe you, well, they'll tell you to stop it. But they won't give you any help, and they'll kill you if you mess it up. So it's up to us. You sound quite paranoid. I, that's, I mean that as a compliment. That doesn't mean I'm not right, Mr. Garnett. I said it was a good thing. I'm not sure whether it's uh, okay or on guard, though. Which is the one you've decided on? It's on guard, isn't it? I'm uh, very firmly holding my gun at the moment. Yeah, let's go with that. There's the blurring around his edges that means he's got his mage armor up. He didn't come unprepared for a fight. He's just not being aggressive. I know what this guy is capable of, which, uh, which, yeah, <laughs> it's a whole lot more than me, but um, I'm, I'm still holding the gun rather tight at the moment. 
Drill will put a hand out to the side just a little bit, signaling uh, Garnak to simmer down a bit. Now, if you're looking for the best and the brightest, then I'm afraid you've found the wrong group. We couldn't even take down two petty criminals. We couldn't even figure out... We found the base of operations uh, of some mass necromancy conspiracy, and we couldn't even get to the bottom of that. And now I'm hearing voices, and nothing's going to happen to them once again. What kind of evil are we talking about here, sir? The kind that ends the world, Mr. Adler. I mean, the only kind of evil I know of is the kind I can hunt. Is that what you're talking about? I'm sure you'll have a chance to shoot lots of things on the way to saving the world from this thing. Well, considering that my life's ambition has just been ended on account of going on a wild chase thanks to this fool, I don't have a lot of options here. Well, the thing is, the university loves nothing more than money. Well, that's not true. The one thing they love more than money is fame. And so, I'd be more than willing to talk to whoever I have to talk to. That said, I would not be opposed to commissioning a research vessel under the auspices of Tallwater University to conduct experiments along the West Rim for a period of five years, Professor Volant? Well, wait, why, why, why are we putting this into terms like that? We're not, we're not actually doing this. I turn to the others, we're not actually doing this, are we? Uh, you are going, regardless. You made a deal. I'm just here to figure out what those terms are. Also, Jero, you did- You made a deal? Uh, okay. Mr. Castle, answer me a question, please. Shoot. Who called the cops? It turns out that your master Felon had a spell phone that he turned on while you were talking about all these things. Magrin, what were you about to say? Oh, I was just going to say, well, Juro got us into this mess, so he's damn well going to get us out of it. Because now we're all out of a job and out of a house. So, you know, if this guy's coming along offering us, you know, a research opportunity, I think he's going to take it for the sake of the rest of us he dragged on this crazy quest that I didn't want to go on to begin with. You volunteered and demanded to come because you said that Juro was going to get us all killed. Well, if you look at that, he didn't get us killed, just fired. Which, in my book, might be worse. Just saying. Well, I'm glad your priorities are in the right place, Doctor. So, you needed Juro to take this job. And now Juro is fired and has no choice but to take this job. You're getting everything you want, aren't you? Oh, I'm not the one who wants these things, Mr. Ungat. I am just the guy who's telling you from the person who wants what they want. And who is that? You'll find out. What is your offer? And I'm not even sure why I'm asking this, because I don't know how what, how well this applies to any of us except Juro. But... I really don't plan on letting the elf get screwed over. So what are exact what exactly are you saying? 
I'm saying that uh, within the week, I can have your credentials restored. I can have your job back. I can put you in a boat outfitted with the latest in research equipment. I can do whatever you decide you need to to help us out with this. But there's a few more things that you have to find out. And unfortunately, I can't tell you too much more until you've taken the oath. There's, there's an oath. This is... Mm. Of course there are. Juro, you can accept that you've been tapped on the shoulder by fate, as it were, and these people are being taken along with you, or you can leave them behind. But either way, you have a promise to keep. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Uh... I'll tell you what. I will leave it up to you. I'm going to go out and have a cigarette. I'll come back when I'm done. Talk amongst yourselves. And then when you look at the porthole, he's standing on the pier having a cigarette. Figured. Like, he's not there. So you look around the room, and uh, you're like, okay, well, he's not here in the cabin. Peek out the window, and there he is, with his umbrella tucked under his arm, lighting a smoke off his thumb. Juro finds uh, a bit of a space to sit and puts his head in his hands. He said he arranged for you to get a job interview. Juro, you realize that he's the one that got you retired in the first place, right? Yeah. Yeah, I do. And then we got, I don't want to say sent, but we ended up on his doorstep. That wasn't on accident either. So basically, we've been played this entire time. Yep, yes we have. Both Mr. Castle and the Headmaster, I believe, were working in cahoots on this. On a brighter note, I don't think he tried to kill us anymore. No. No, I don't. I don't think he would have. Well. I don't know if any of you realize what it is that they're asking us to do here. He hasn't asked us to do anything, short of we're going to be on a boat. Or really, you're going to be on a boat, but we'll figure it that's, out. That's not what I mean. He, he mentioned a promise, and uh, I, I did make a promise. To the voices in your head? As it were, yes. Yes, I did. You might have mentioned those to us when we were back at Hawthorne House. Yeah, well, I I cut a deal, okay? I cut a deal with an entity that I don't understand because I wanted to spare the lives of two criminals that I thought needed saving. And now you have voices in your head? No, the voices were there beforehand. Are you... Hmm. Sorry, just from a medical standpoint, I'm curious and want to take a look. But I know you oh. don't like me digging around in your brain, so I'm just trying to a- ask questions. I, I'm gonna let you dig around in my brain this time, because I'm honestly questioning my brain at the moment. Oh, excellent. But the fact of the matter is, you're all being dragged along on this because I made a deal and I don't have a way to get out of it. 
why do you want to get out of that deal? Because it's with an entity that is beyond comprehension. There are things out there that are really best left unknown. Yes, but you made a promise. Now you must keep that promise, Jura. I know. Why, why do you all sound so okay with that? Oh, well, okay is kind of strong. It's more the fact that I didn't make a binding oath to an extra-dimensional entity, so I don't really got much of a say in it. And actually, Vesper, it sounds like he got off pretty darn easy. Like, if there's no, if, if he's not screaming about the consequences already, that deal is pretty flimsy from your perspective, so... It's a matter of honor, Juro, and anyways, that's a rather calm promise, to say the least. It could have been a lot worse. Still have no idea what the parameters of the deal actually are. It was a spur-of-the-moment decision. Oh, that's more like it. <laughs> that's better. Ah. <laughs> uh, I see. It seems to me that when there's something out there in the world that you don't understand, and believe me, there's many things out there that we don't understand, the way to conquer them is not to run away from them. Look, I don't care if I go back to the university or not. I'm... I can move. I've done it before. I'll probably have to do it again. This... To be honest, I was able to stick around longer than I thought. But I'm not really going anywhere till I get Vesper back home. Once I figure that thing out, then I'll do whatever I want. But that's my priority. So, I think we need to figure out a couple of other questions. One, are we going to trust, do we trust Castle at all? Two, why the hell would we trust Castle until we get some straight answers about something? At least, if he can't explain everything, he needs to explain whatever the hell he can. Otherwise, I vote for trying to shoot him, even though they'll probably fail horribly. And three... Oh, never mind. Three had to deal with the voice inside Juro's head, and I'm really going to try and leave that one alone. Yeah, I think leave the voice in Juro's head to me. I'm, I'm going to figure out what's going on there. We might need to do some exploratory things, but I'm sure it'll be fine. Juro, if you're stuck... I got no problem helping you, okay? But if I don't really know if helping you is going along with Castle in the slightest, I, I have a feeling that what might be helping you is shooting him in the face and hoping for the best. But we need some more answers. We need to get something clarified. It doesn't have to be everything. I'll help you out as long as Vesper's all right with it because, like I said, my priority is getting her home. But I don't plan on abandoning you either. Garnak, I think we need to take this one step forward, two steps back. Maybe if we, you know, interact with Castle more, there can be more information to be learned. I don't think he's going to be forthright with everything right away. I mean, I wouldn't be. Frankly, I'm curious about this venture. I, I think if we go along with it for now, things may reveal themselves. 
All we know about Castle is that he saved us from the Skulks. He let us stay in his property. And he's offering us a job now. Sure, he might act a little shifty, but he hasn't done anything wrong. He's why Juro got fired in the first place. Juro is being retired because of him. That's a fact. Well, technically I'm being retired because of a constitution that I personally drafted. But details... Juro? Yeah? You need to make a decision. I'll turn in. I'll nod at Vesper, and then I will stand up warily and turn to Castle. Well, I know I don't really have a choice, so it's kind of a moot point. But I'll take your deal. I have nowhere else to go. That's alright. We've already booked rooms for you for the next week at the Savoy. Savoy. Yeah, the Savoy. Very nice. And uh, once you get your things out of your residence at the university, well, let's just say there's more to Hawthorne Hill than uh, just a fixer-upper. You'll see. As for the rest of you, um, I have booked the whole floor at the Savoy, in fact. For the next week, if you would care to find other arrangements on your own, that's up to you. However, I expect uh, I'll be seeing you in the next week. You'll all be hearing from me. Assuming, of course, that you are remaining with Juro in this. I can have the misunderstanding that led to your dismissal cleared up. And go back to a cage? No. Freedom is a terrible thing, Miss Vesper. You'll see that. Very soon. Perhaps, Mr. Castle, but right now, I don't think I would live in tall water. Then uh, may I invite you to join us at our home? My wife is uh, an aficionado of the ethereal realms. Vesper gets his meaning and nods, simply asking, would it be possible to have someone retrieve my things? I'm sure that I can have them delivered right away. In the meantime, Master Ungod, would you be so good as to make sure that, to come with us and make sure that Miss Vesper is comfortable? Yeah, that sounds like a plan. Thank you. I appreciate your uh, grace in this, and I have taken the liberty of... Uh, well, I cleared out that carriage house. So I saw how comfortable you got in that right away. You are too kind. I just hope that you'll take that gun off me because I don't mean you any harm, I promise you. It's not pointed at you. It's pointed around you. And look, here's my big problem. I want answers. I want clarity. I realize you apparently have requirements of being vague on certain issues. Whatever you can avoid being vague on, not necessarily tonight, but soon, I really want to know. The thing is that I belong to a society of like-minded people who would be quite cross with me if I went and made decisions on their behalf. 
I'm not empowered to do so. Until I have the authorization to tell you more, I can't. At present, I am only able to speak with Professor Vallant, who was our initial recruit. However, you've all performed so admirably that the Society has decided to extend the invitation to you, which is why I say, should you not wish to continue, we can arrange for your old life to be restored with a lot of red faces and some apologies all around. You can work back at your old job, go back to your old life, but I'm afraid Gerald made a decision. It seems like you're all coming with him, and I really admire that. I find it refreshing. I will say this. I'm not coming because of Jiro. When I was growing up, I had one choice, and that was to come here to learn more about how to catch these beasts in the world. And now, it seems to me that you're offering me a choice to do that only better. So if you can find use, and there's room for me to see new things and learn new things, then that's what I choose to do. And y'all can choose to do what you want. Auntie Magrin, I'm planning to write my mom a letter and tell her this is what I'm doing. And freedom may be a terrible thing, but it's the least terrible alternative, wouldn't you say, Mr. Castle? For sure, Mr. Adler, and I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your decision. You're a lot like your father. Finn's face goes a little bit pale, but he doesn't say anything. See, I, I know he never told you. He never told you or your mother. So uh, it surprised me to see Pete Adler's kid here with Gerald Vallant. I had a feeling you'd sign on for sure. The rest of them I didn't know about. I hope there's going to be a chance for us to have words in private at some point. Absolutely. I can't wait to tell you stories about him. Finn? Your mama sent you here so I could protect you, so I'm going to have to go along to make sure nothing happens to you on my watch. To be frank, I'm interested in what he's offering as well. The research could be very interesting. I haven't been to sea yet. Could be a new experience. Well, I'm guessing you pay better than the university, right? We pay much better than the university. But I think you must know that trust goes two ways. If you're going to trust us and we're going to trust you, we need to we there's some, some we need to know we're not walking into some kind of trap here. Another trap. That's the point of mysteries, Mr. Adler. You can't know everything. You have to figure things out for yourself. Unfortunately, I'm being as forthcoming as I can right now. As the other members of the society decide to let you know what you need to know, I'm afraid I can't tell you more. I understand secrets. That I get. I understand bound information, as I'm sure you're well aware. Vesper, are you going? Can I do an insight check on Mr. Castle real quick? Yep. 22. Castle's got that kind of smile, you know? Well, he's somewhere between evangelist, late-night TV host, and car salesman. But at the same time, as you look past that smile, you see this inscrutable intelligence, this deep, powerful, mighty brain 
like he's he, he's he's a handsome man. He's obviously he's buffed. He's he's chiseled. His his hair is perfect. His teeth are straight. Like he he has never broken his nose. Like he, he's clearly this guy. Nothing bad has ever happened to him, or is that magic? Right. He and his wife are pretty attractive. And if the math is to be believed, about eighty years old. Well, whatever. Definitely older than they're supposed to be. How old humans get, you don't know. But no, you 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 can't. He's he, he's a he's wrapping paper. Hmm. I'm sorry, Garnack. What was that? Vespio is asking if you're going with him for the week or in this venture. I don't know. Are you? I'm get for whatever. I wouldn't mind talking to uh, Mrs. Castle. You said it sounds like she might have some interesting information. So I'm at least going for a trip if you're up for it, Vesper. For now, let's. I'm all right with going and staying with the castles. Um, when it comes to this venture and trying to and working with Juro in this secret society or whatever it is, I have nothing else beyond what is in that room and what I carry on me. I have no one else but myself, so I don't know what I'm going to do. Just like that, Jero, in an instant, it seems everything you've known for about two centuries now, give or take, is gone. All you have is the knowledge that's in your head, what you could pack into a bunch of trunks, and the books in your book bags. Fine thing anyway, because it seems that the cabin they intend for you to live on in the ship well, like that's you don't need to sleep. So really, you just need a comfy chair at the very minimum. But you are no minimalist, Jiro. Never have been, never will be. And so these quarters are cramped. And it turns out that um, you need most of that footage to carry what you've gotten out of the university. Now, when it comes to mechanics and scraping halls and aquadynamics, if they'd been pressing interests, you probably would have picked them up in the last couple hundred years. Why would I bother with that? There are people outside of academia that learn these things so that I don't have to. Precisely. And so you find yourself with more free time than you're used to. You spend a few days arranging and rearranging your cabin on the boat, which, you note, has gotten bigger since the first time you visited it. Evidently, Mr. Castle or someone in his employ has added a few extra feet to the interior of the ship while not expanding its exterior at all. Yes, I've already gotten the layout of the entire ship, sending my uh, familiar Calerion in shipwrat form throughout the whole of the hull and uh, the upper decks and just getting a sense of where everything is and what the scale of it is. 
it's funny because it really is bigger on the inside. Once you get below decks, the place just balloons out. Not vastly. I mean, it doesn't go from being the the you know the the trawler size that it is to a luxury cruise ship or anything, but uh, things are more livable, more comfortable anyway. So once you've got your stuff arranged that way, the laboratory hasn't even been started. They're working on engines and things like that this week. And so you find yourself at liberty to explore. And no sooner do you finish the necessary than there is a sneaking feeling which creeps upon you that you have business to attend to in Cape Largo. Yeah, I put together a very simple day bag. And without saying anything to anyone, I head out uh, from the quay and make my way back towards uh, the town itself. Are you going to do that over land or by water? What are my options by water? Well, you could take a taxi. Um, you could like you could take a taxi. You could take a, a water omnibus, right? Like there's, there are bigger boats that travel passengers all up and down either shore. How many of them would get me close enough to um, Hawthorne House? Hawthorne House, you could do via transit in about six hours if you hired a like a taxi boat. You could probably do it in three. All right, I'll I'll hail uh, I'll hail a cab. And it comes puttering up. You settle into the comfortable seat, and the hack behind you, who is a goblin, finds out where you're going. You say Cape Largo, and a satisfied smile spreads over the goblin's face. This is a whole day job, and uh, well, it's scary. It's easy money, right? So you settle in, crack a broadsheet. And the boat heads off towards the locks. Four steps down the falls. The water's a little choppier and rougher here. And you see that by sticking close to the shore, the hack manages to keep the roughness mostly out of the trip. Soon, you are back in the outflow of the river. And your boat picks up some decent speed. As we move, I settle into a, a somewhat limited form of my normal meditation. And I urge myself towards a more wintry form so as to better be able to handle the drops in temperatures I remember from our previous incursion. Goblin driving the boat sees this and loses all expression on his face for a good minute until he realizes that you're not even, you don't even notice him there. And then he makes a sign behind your head and continues to drive. The next scene we see is Juro standing underground, lit as though from lights underwater. We can see the way that the lights move around on the inside of this chamber. And Jiro stands there with his umbrella tucked under one arm and his bag in his other hand before a whispering darkness into which he has traditionally and is currently having 
difficulty proceeding. I put out one hand in front of me uh, as if to push through something. Uh, does my hand simply sink into the darkness and vanish? You just stick it out in front of you and uh, it, it gets darker. But as you walk, reaching to see if you can feel anything, magical or otherwise, it's disconcerting because it just gets dark. This doesn't happen, see? You can actually, you can see in fairly sharp detail out to about 60 feet normally. And then like, even in the darkest nights, you can see movement and shapes as far as you can see, right? This, it's like you go blind in the dim. Instead of reaching out with my five senses, I reach out with the sixth one and uh, call out with my uh, with my mind. I assume you've been watching me since I set foot on the island. How do you wish me to proceed? No response. With a deep breath, I will close my eyes and shuffle one foot in front of the other, gaining confidence as I step through until my strides become my normal springy step. And after what you can assume is a couple of dozen feet at most, the island isn't that big. It's three square acres, which granted is a large chunk of land, but not that big. You step out of the dim and into a room which is unlit, but not dark. Not to you. Doesn't have the active presence of darkness rather than the absence of light. That's correct. I blink a few times and get my bearings uh, and attempt to monitor and slow the heart that is pounding in my ears. There is what appears to be very ornate magic circle carved into the stone floor of this chamber. You draw a deep breath, and one of the runes in the far corner flares octarine. Octarine's like a mid-hue between Grable and Thaumachrome. A fleeting thought crosses my mind that this is like one of those newer... Uh, terrible, moving stories that they've been showing at theaters of late. Yeah, but they sell, so what can you do, right? You're not going to get rid of them if they're making money. As you calm your breath and your eyes adjust to the absence of light, you see that, yes, this is indeed a an ornately carved floor. It uh, possesses script from several languages and magical notation from several traditions. Do I recognize all of the script? In the same way that you or I would recognize Greek or Cyrillic or Hebrew or Sanskrit, but not be able to read it. Yes. I look towards where the one rune had started to glow and uh, take another deep breath. As you draw in, the rune dims as you breathe out, it lights up, and you see the light drain down a channel to start to illuminate another glyph. So, 
What uh, what is the vague description of the shape of the glyph that lit up first? The first one that lit up, it's a serpentine thing. You think it's Akkodian, Southern Akkodian, where all of the letters look like snakes in various shapes. They're all very serpentine and, and like flowing the script kind of moves like a poem across a page. And the one that has just lit up uh, subsequently? That is Dwarven. You're not sure if it's High Dwarven or Low Dwarven or West Dwarven or Southern Dwarven, but it is one of those old dwarf settlements. Like, like, like somewhere in the Baronies or the or the Bales or the, the Toll cities, you know? Right. Ah, yes, the Republic uses those runes. The Stonegate Republic retrieved this ancient dwarven civilization's rune set and uses those for its magic. But it's very much the carving and artifice kind of thing, right? Like you have to carve them into a bone and then soak that bone in the piss of a yak underneath the full moon to make a charm that will keep your cheese from going off for a couple of days. Small magic, but still magic. So, these are all on the floor, correct? Yep. So, carefully walking between the uh, lines of this magic circle, I'll go over to that rune and uh, look around it a little bit. Does it, It's carved directly into stone, right? Yep. I, I'll touch it. Something is causing the stone itself to luminesce along these channels and these lines. It seems to be, now that you're calming down, like now, now that you've calmed your heartbeat from that press through that darkness, which honestly, Jero was a lot more disturbing than it should have been. Now that you're through and you've calmed your heartbeat and your curiosity is wetted, you see that the next rune, this glyph, the more you look at it, the more that you focus your curiosity on it, the brighter it glows. Uh, I, I hold up my hand and snap my fingers, creating a little moat of fire uh, in between my thumb and my middle finger, uh, just to get a better look at this thing. As you snap your fingers and move magic, the rune lights up, the same as the other one, and it begins to trickle off in two directions, and you see that the diagram begins to come into focus. This is a complex lock. A very, very complex arcane lock. Curse silently under my breath, wishing that uh, I had a partner to, uh, to help me with this. These locks of this size tend to have two-factor authorization and usually are easier to work with when you have another pair of hands and another mind working on them, but I don't, so I persevere. I will reach out with a thread of my consciousness, uh, just feeling around the way that I, the way that I called out to the, uh, the voice inhabiting the island, and just kind of feel around underneath some of the glyphs, getting a sense of where the tumblers are, as it were. 
I go through with a couple of magic suppression techniques. Uh, I pull out silver, I pull out sage, uh, I pull out uh, my dagger and nick my thumb a little bit. Nothing that is enough to completely break through any of these defenses, but enough to get a, a sense of uh, where my next step should be. So you start picking over here and realize that it's a puzzle. It's an eight-part arcane lock. Each part was designed by a particular warlock. Each warlock, being a different person, worked their lock to work with their predecessors and also with their successors. So it would seem. Like there are certain parts of these that are designed to work with the things that came after them as though they expected these very different techniques to come along. So they only want certain people to be able to figure out how to do it, but they still want them to be able to do it. Right. And so you take a big, deep breath. You've got everything close, Juro. All it's going to take is the right sort of bump, but the wrong sort of bump is going to knock everything askew. This is, quite frankly, the hardest, most rewarding wizarding work you've done in 50 years. A chill of excitement runs down my spine. Not even fear anymore. The the uh, the sense of foreboding and oppressive uh, feeling that I had prior has vanished, and I form a couple of sigils with my hands and attempt to match my own abjurative magic to what I think is happening beneath the surface of this. It's the next morning. The room is lit by several drift globes and things from Juro's bag, which sits over in the corner. The arcanisms of this lock are widely exploded to your etheric senses uh, and have been all night. You've been meditating on them as you trance and let your body rest. Because frankly, this was a bit of an ordeal. You haven't eaten since lunch yesterday because you didn't expect this to take you past dinner. Gathering yourself and putting your consciousness towards the outside now, Jero, you get the feeling that it's after breakfast. The sun is already up, and if the foghorn that just blared past you is any indication, the morning tide is leaving. So you set your feet down on the ground, and as you stand up, the camera takes a view of the room. It shifts to your perspective with all of these arcanisms opened up, worked through their theories, hanging in the, like, theories drawn in various colors of light, all in the ether sphere, hanging around you. You yawn and scratch the, like, scratch the back of your head behind your ear, and we can see that, like, you have no shirt on or shoes, and that there are henna diagrams all over your feet, and your hands and arms all up through your binding tattoos, which now we can see flash sharply thomachrome, like, 
like um, like metallic armor underneath your skin as you raise your hand and tap an equation which had been cooking itself all night. It should be ready to go. The camera snaps back out of your perception to see you painted with various sigils and, you know, a couple of cuts here and there for the blood you needed to work the magic. But you think you've got it. It took all night and uh, you got into your trance late, which explains why you're just coming to now. It's probably going to work, but you should do some last minute preparations. Uh, I take a last, uh, a few last looks over my work. Uh, I push a little here, pull a little there, uh, just to make sure that everything is still responding correctly and that I haven't unbalanced anything unintentionally. Uh, I notice that uh, from my, from the one hand that has uh, tattoos on it, there is a slight thomachrome sparking. Uh, that I will probably need to look into at some point. It feels like it's possibly come a little bit unstable, and I'm not sure if it's in my favor or uh, or if it will make my bindings even tighter. Just filed away for looking into later. But yeah, as the uh, as the calculations run in front of me one more time. Uh, my hands moving them slightly uh, as if I am directing a symphony of light and a, uh, an orchestra of images and words. And the whole thing moves like a great big well-lubricated machine, like a team that knows its job and does it perfectly. It seems to be syncing with everything, Joe. All it's going to take is for you to drop it into the mix here. All of these resonances, they all just kind of hit with a chime that fades out with the light and soon all is dark. Your eyes adjust, of course, because it's not active darkness, it's passive darkness. What's the temperature like in here? Well, you adjusted it because you've been working in here all night and you slowly brought it up to about 65. Normally it's about 40. Okay. So everything settles back down. Uh, the room is warm, but losing its losing that warmth rapidly. Right, as it all soaks into the stone. And then there is a sound of moving stone from underneath your feet. And at the center of the diagram, a hatch slides away and an obelisk rises from the circle in the center of the circle. Is it a stone obelisk? It is. In that obelisk, there is what bears the passing resemblance to a handprint, but it has eight fingers. They are not any of them the normal length, nor is that palm uh, any serious breadth that you've seen on any walking species in any of the lands you've been. I, I shrug and just lay my hand on it, throwing all caution to the wind. Well, it doesn't fit. It's the thing. Like this hand, your hand goes right into this. No problem. Your hand sits right in the center of the palm. 
I um, put both of my hands in, attempting to spread them out a little bit more and uh, cover more of the handprint. Well, now you have too much hand in there. I feel like I know where this is going. And I'm sure that I don't like it. Suddenly, uh, Juro is thankful for the empty stomach as uh, his brain starts racing through all of the possible ways in which he could adapt to this uh, new unforeseen obstacle. There is a spell which you have to remember. You learned it because it was somebody told you it was tough. Like somebody told so somebody told you it was hard to cast. And it turns out that it wasn't so much hard to cast as difficult to endure casting. On a good day, transmutation has never been my strong suit. I can barely throw an object across a room. But to to change the very molecular structure of my own body has been well beyond my means and capacity for understanding. And it's never something that I've really looked into. Well, the handprint in the obelisk is a right handprint. I will um, begin with cracking the knuckles of my right hand in all directions pulling on each finger, bending the fingers back, bending the fingers over, uh, limbering up every joint. And as you mutter under your breath, all of the sigils in the floor, including the ones you've just added, begin to glow and light the room. I um, know that the hard part is coming. I take my I take my dagger and I run it from uh, on the palm side of my hand from the base of my index, middle, and ring fingers uh, all the way up to the tip to the uh, to the pads, um, drawing blood, cutting through, uh, cutting through the tendons of my fingers, and splitting them not quite not through the bone but uh, just to make the transition a little bit easier to relieve the pressure of uh, the pulling that I know is about to occur and your dagger is kind of shining and glinting with this octarine light you know just like that that sort of gleam that it's gotten and you uh Man, you were you were wise to take the time to do that to it last night. That'd be good thinking, Joe. The spell appears to be firing perfectly. Um, there's that detachment because the magic delays the sensation for a moment, just long enough for you to finish spitting out the last of the ancient names of a long dead god of change. You slap your palm into the shape of that hand and then gritting your teeth as the ecstatic pain washes up your arm 
and threatens to betray you and make you pull your arm out of there. As you take the pommel slash side of the blade slash back of the blade slash edge of the blade of your dagger and reform your hand to exactly match this handprint. This hurts worse than anything you can remember in recent years. And when you are done, you flex your eight weird fingers in the groove and with a click, the whole floor turns and there's a door in the wall behind you. I, uh, as I pull my hand out, my whole body shaking, I, I'm soaked with sweat. Uh, I'm suddenly very, very cold, uh, which makes sense because I have lost a fair bit of blood in this process. Um, but as I flex my newly formed hand, the spell gives way to my own natural form and uh, returns to a perfectly healthy, intact, normal hand with just a dull pain. As it does, the handprint in the obelisk transforms to magic. I give a, uh, a silent thanks for uh, not having to go through that part again and move towards the door that has now opened. Well, it's not open, it's closed. It's a round top sort of thing with a big bright brass knob on the front governor, such as you'd find in the Riverlands, sure. Sorry, the door that has now appeared. And I will uh, reach for the knob with my now definitely elvish hand. With a click, the door opens and you step into the foyer of a beautiful manor home. Runelanders is recorded live and curated, produced, and edited by me with indispensable help from Cassie Goodwin-Harrison, Matthew Harrison, Chris Stockavaz, Greg Setnick, and Carrie Copley. All the usual people played all the usual parts, and if you want to know more about them, you can find out all about them, all about the little Easter eggs that I scattered through these episodes, and so much more at runelanders.com. Watch for our vastly improved website coming up soon. That'll about do it for this episode. Next time on Runelanders, we're gonna have some wicked awesome fun. You have to check it out. We'll see you then. I'm DM Matt Adam. I'm DM Good Guy. Reminding you to roll high and don't die. Until next. Take good care. Cut to the castle house. It's dark and it's it's raining lightly out here. And uh, you see Vesper and Garnack walking along behind Judy Castle. And the music's playing over what she's saying. And I'm talking over what she's saying. So we can't really hear her. Garnack is listening with interest. And uh, Vesper, you're watching the lightning dance out on the water. Every time the lightning flashes, you can see the silhouette of Hawthorne House. Uh, you turn the corner and into a long hallway of glass, off of which there are rooms. 
And as you pass these rooms, you see that one is full of foliage from like a jungle garden. And then there's another one that's a, a, a rainforest. And there's a, and each one of these contains a different biome. Judith stops the last one and you can't believe your eyes. In this sweltering, hot cesspool of a world, there is beautiful, exquisite frost covering the inside of these windows. And as Judith opens up the door, there is a <sighs> sound of the air. And Vesper, you step into fresh, powdery, delicious, How? frozen what? snow. How? <laughs> and with that, you fall onto your back and make snow devils. The camera switches to back to the Savoy, where Finn is backing out of Magrin's room and uh, turning across the hall. The concierge opens the room, shows him in. It's well appointed. It's, uh, I, I mean, it's not a huge suite or anything like that, but this is the Savoy, so everything is opulent. This is just enough for a single fellow of means. And uh, you appear to be checked in here for a week. Finn, you, you stop and look down the hall, and for a second you, can, you think you can see a flash of movement, but then it's gone. You blink again, your eyes flash gold, nothing. So you open your room and go in.